0: If you look into the Bible, you'll find that storms are spoken about, especially on three big occasions. One of the most famous of all storm stories, of course, is the account uh, of what happened to Jonah. Now, everyone is interested uh, in Jonah. Uh, You want to see that here a storm occurs because Jonah had been disobedient to God. And sometimes storms come to us in life because we disobey God. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach a message of repentance. And Jonah refused to go to Nineveh to preach, and he took a ship instead for Tarshish, which I think would be modern Spain. And he was going to get away from there, go just the other way from where God told him to go. And you remember how the great storm came at sea. You remember the storm came because Jonah disobeyed God. And sometimes storms come to us in life when we disobey God. We plainly did not do what he instructed us to do. And you know, I was thinking about Jonah yesterday. If I received a message from the Lord to go preach in the Kremlin, it'd be pretty hard. I'd think about it for a while. Or if the message came to me, go to Peking and preach there, it'd be hard. Well, Nineveh was a terribly evil a monstrously wicked and hateful place, and yet God told Jonah to go there and to preach. And if I wouldn't be welcome to preach the gospel message in the Kremlin or at Peking, then Jonah had reason to believe that the message of Jehovah, which he preached, wouldn't be welcome in Nineveh either. And so he disobeyed God, he ran away, and he got into trouble. And we do that too. And if we do disobey God, then there's only one thing to do, and that's to cast yourself out of that ship and head straight for where God meant for you to go. That's the way to correct it. If you get lost walking down a road, turn around and go back down the road to the place where you got off and get back on the right road again. Tommy mentioned something about that a moment ago in his testimony. Now then, uh, there is a second storm that you can see called Eurachlidon in Scripture, and that's one that came down on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus' disciples were there One of the greatest sermons I ever heard on that was by Dr. McFerrin Crowe, who in my judgment was always one of the most gifted and able preachers in all of the Presbyterian Church U.S. And Mac used to say that it was important for those disciples to learn discipline. They were to learn that Jesus not only could command a little boat to take him across that lake, the little boat was his, Jesus could not only tell these disciples, they were his, what to do, but Jesus could command even the storm. Even the storm, he could command it. Now, I think there uh, is an activity of the devil that takes place in storms also. If you remember that in that storm that took place on the lake of Galilee, when Jesus arrived at the shore, a maniac, a madman out of the caves, met him who was possessed of demons. We have a lot of interest in demons now, and their activity is great. And here was one who met Jesus, shrieking in madness. I think the devil tried to use a storm to stop Jesus from getting there, but Jesus spoke to that storm out at the sea, and he said to that storm, Hush, be still. And it was stilled immediately. And so if God takes us in obedience to him through a period of discipline and testing, And if the evil one tries his onslaught against us, we don't have to be afraid because we know that no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and sea and sky. Now that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You sing it in the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, Ruler of all nature, and he can come back and he can override whatever the devil would throw in our way. And the devil throws many things in our way. And then there is the third type of storm. A storm that demonstrates, like Paul does here, the great providence of God. This we've been studying in our church officers meeting on Wednesday night. We've had a great interest in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What does thou mean by the providence of God? Pro-video. That God can see what goes before and God is ordaining And God is ruling, and God is overruling. And he is ruling and overruling in his love, and he is doing it for his glory. And this brings to our hearts a great deal of satisfaction to know that there's no panic up in heaven. God's not up there saying, what are we going to do about the fuel crisis? What are we going to do about the Russians or the Chinese? What am I going to do about the church? It's gone crazy. It looks like Lake Susan when it's drained. Well, what am I going to do about all of the things? that God isn't worried about that. He isn't worried about that. He's working right on schedule, and he's going to work his purposes out, and we can fall in line with his purposes, and it's a lot easier that way. There's not as much wear and tear on us when we do, or we can go contrary to them. Now, the three things that I want to say concerning storms and You know, this not only confined to the Bible, if you read the odyssey, it has to do uh, with an odyssey, with a a journey, a pilgrim's progress of how a pilgrim travels in life. Uh, I was looking at a hymn, a great uh, Methodist hymn, One Sweetly Solemn Thought Comes to Me O'er and O'er. I'm nearer home today than I have been before. If you ever go out on the ocean and go across the sea, they, they have a red line that uh, will be marked each day showing you the p- position of the ship, where you're going. Well, we're one day near home, than we were yesterday. The Lord is working, and, and this life of ours is a, a voyage. Now then, I don't want to press the analogies all the way. There are people who say that the boat here is the church. I'm not so sure about that because it gets broken all to pieces, and all you've got to get to shore on are the church boards, and I don't think they'd make it. Uh, uh, I don't think that's what Luke was teaching. <laughs> anyway, it's that, here. But I do think that it's, uh, we can see the providence of God at work here, and we can see his hand at work. First of all, let me say that God had appeared to Paul telling him that he was to take his message to Rome, If you ever go to Rome, you want to go to the Forum. And there in the Forum, in in the time of Rome's great glory, there was a golden milestone. And all of the roads of the empire were supposed to lead to Rome. And they marked their way to where that gold milestone was at the Forum. Well, Paul wanted to go to Rome, too. He wanted to go to Rome because he knew that if he could go to this center of the world, that that would be the place where he would put the banner, the standard of Jesus on the highest possible peak and he wanted to claim that city for Christ. When he wrote his great epistle to the Romans he told them how he desired to get there. And you remember when he was at Jerusalem and the great riot that occurred there God told him that just as he had been faithful in his witness at Jerusalem so he was going to faithfully take him all the way to Rome. And so this is going to be taught us here I think you could pick up the first point in our lesson a moment ago just from reading the narrative. And that is storms, storms cannot harm the child of God. Storms cannot harm the child of God. Now when Paul begins to tell us how this wonderful man, Julius, this Roman centurion who treated Paul kindly, he must have seen a quality of character and intelligence in Paul that he seldom saw in men. Maybe he was one of those phalanx of soldiers that stood there when Paul gave that magnificent speech in the presence of King Agrippa and Portius Festus. At any rate, this Julius, who is the distinguished centurion, the captain of a hundred men, uh, a great cohort uh, of specialists from the Roman Empire, he is in charge of taking up whole number of prisoners to Rome and Paul is one of those prisoners but he's kind to Paul. Julius in kindness to Paul allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. That's interesting isn't it? From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. There is some hint here of trouble that lies ahead. We sailed across the open sea to the coast of Cilicia There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us on board. The Alexandrian ship, this one particularly, was a ship carrying grain. And these were larger than we usually suppose. Uh, This sailing vessel would have been about 140 feet long and it would have been 35 or 40 feet wide. It carried a, a big cargo of grain. We know from the account here that there were 276 persons on board that ship. And if you'll read Acts 27, you can see that. And so it's a good-sized ship, this Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and put us on board. Now then, when the wind did not allow us to hold to our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete. We moved along the coast with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens near to the town of Lassie. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. That means that it was uh, after the fast in the fall uh, when September came. Uh, After September, sailing became terribly difficult and in November it was closed completely. That's why Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, says, Do thy diligence to come before winter, because if he did not leave before The storms began in the fall. He knew that he could never get there. So Paul warns them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now I think it's something that he would have even called uh, Paul in on this conference on board the ship to determine what they were going to do. He didn't listen to Paul's advice, and I'm sure later he wished that he had. We're told here the reason that they didn't stay in Fair Havens, which was the harbor that they had put into, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in. They wanted a, a better place to spend the winter, and the majority decided that we should sail on. The majority. Sometimes go through the Bible and read about majority and minority reports. Go back there and read about how the spies go into Canaan and read about the majority's reports of how tall the giants are and and how awful it's going to be and that they can't take it. Then read the minority report. Don't ever get caught on the side of the majority as thinking that that's the will of God. There is a great part of the Westminster Confession that tells us that councils have erred and do err, and don't ever forget it. Uh, uh, the majority does not speak for the voice of God. And uh, uh, you remember when Pilate came out and said, "What shall we do? Do you want this man or Barabbas? You want me to set Jesus, let him go free? Or do you want me to let Barabbas go free?" And they said, let Barabbas go free. We want to crucify Jesus. That's what can happen sometimes when you get caught in the crowd. So the majority decided that we should sail on. They had a little boat that took place. And and I suppose that the centurion would have counted the boats. And he said, everyone who wants to sail, uh, hold up your hand. And 272 hands go up. They want to go on to a To reach Phoenix and winter there, all who are opposed hold up your hand. And there is Paul and Aristarchus and Luke, three. The centurion is counting. So the eyes have it, and they sail. When a gentle south wind began to blow, watch the gentle south winds. They thought they had obtained what they wanted. They said, "You see, you boys were wrong. We really ought to sail." So they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a wind of hurricane force came, and that's that Uroquadil, that Northeaster, which swept down from the island. And the ship was caught by that storm. And they could not head it into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. What a tremendous storm it is that takes place. But this storm cannot, hide, cannot harm the child of God And God is teaching us that through this lesson and through the other storms that are recorded here. And the second point I want you to remember is that storms cannot hide you from the face of God. Now, you may go through such a painful storm and such wretched agony and pain and such disappointment that you think the rain-swept darkness has hid God's form from you, but nonetheless He is watching you and when you reach your destination at last, you will find that his footsteps have walked with you all the way when you belong to him and you're his. So it cannot, the storm cannot hide you from the face of God. You see, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now this wasn't a typical I told you so attitude because Paul uh, wants to say that he gave them a warning before and it's a gracious way with God that he sometimes warns us against doing something but then we go ahead and do it but don't give up don't give up because you disobeyed because if you listen God will speak to you again. And he will show you his face. He'll bring you back like he brought this, brought this boy back and his father back. And if you've wandered away from him, he'll bring you back. There, you know, I said a while ago there are storms that uh, uh, come to us because we disobey God. There are storms that God sends to us to discipline us. Storms that Satan casts in our path to frustrate us. There are storms that other people bring upon us. There are people right here in this congregation who, if you wouldn't be ashamed to bear your most intimate thoughts to other people, would say, oh preacher, if you only knew the storm that's come into my life because of what my husband has done. If you only knew the storm that's come into my life because of what my son or my daughter has done. There are sons and daughters here who would say, if you could only know the story of what my father did or what my mother did, the storms that they didn't create, Someone else created them. They voted, let's go on. They said, let's go on. And their disobedience. And Paul had to go, he was a prisoner. Joseph Parker has a great word about this. He said that when Paul got on board that ship, he was the prisoner. Before their voyage had ended, he was the captain. They were listening to what he said. So Paul told them, He said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, and then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. Damage and loss. You see, God rules, and he overrules. God's going to get Paul to Rome. You know why? Ephesians is going to be written in Rome. Philippians is going to be written in Rome. Colossians is going to be written in Rome. The man who wrote this is Luke. And he's going to write the Gospel of Luke and he's going to write the Acts of the Apostles. God had a lot traveling on that boat. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Luke, Acts, First and Second Timothy, Philemon, the prison epistles. They come out of there, you see. So God, God's going to get Paul to Rome. Now, you can go uh, in the obedient way and get there with the cargo or you can disobey God. And it will be hard. I had one countryman who was giving his testimony once in a church where I was preaching. And he said that the Lord was using some double-aught sandpaper on him. And he, he said, I'll sure be glad when he gets down to something with a finer grain. Well, well, now, that's the way it is sometimes. The Lord has to use a little double-aught sandpaper on us to get us in shape. Uh, so that he can uh, make us what we're meant to be. Everyone likes to quote as an example of the providence of God and predestination, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. According to his purpose. Okay, keep on reading. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his Son. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit is to conform us into what Christ means for us to be. And that may mean some double-aught sandpaper at times. And it may mean that he's going to work on us. It doesn't say that all things are good. I always like to point that out. But it says that all things work together for good. Under the hand of God, it's going to come out good. Okay, Paul says, then you would have been spared this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now they wouldn't be lost because of this righteous man and because of Luke, who had signed on board as a slave and Aristarchus as a slave. How many people do you know who would be willing to be a slave of a missionary? Yet they wanted to get out the gospel message that desperately. And because these righteous men were there, God spared it. Like Sodom and Gomorrah when uh, the angel spoke with Lot. Are there ten righteous men there? Well, God spared this boat because Paul was on that ship. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And said, "Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who will sail who sail with you. Isn't that wonderful? I believe in angels. I believe in angels. And an angel of God stood beside Paul and said, "Don't be afraid. You know why we're afraid? We're afraid because of circumstances. Peter took his eyes off the face of the Lord and looked at the storm and so he started to sink. And when we look at the storms of life that are raging instead of keeping our eyes fixed upon the Savior, we become full of fear as Peter did and he started to sink. Or we become full of fear of other people. This has been a a hard thing for some of us. You get afraid of other people who don't agree with you. How are you going to overcome the fear of circumstances through the power of the Lord? Realize that he is working his purposes out. How are you going to be uh, overcoming the fear of other people by loving them? You're not afraid of someone if you love them. And if we can ask the Holy Spirit to put the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians into an operative force in our lives and we can love someone else, then we don't have to be afraid of them. We don't have to be afraid of the people. We don't have to be afraid of the circumstances. Uh, God is working there. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Now they had looked up and they couldn't see the stars. And they couldn't see the sun to reckon by. And they were terribly afraid. But Paul got this gracious message of hope from God. God's face had not been hidden from Paul. And God's will had not been hindered. So here are your three points. A storm cannot harm the child of God. A storm cannot hide you from God's face. And a storm cannot hinder the will of God from ultimately being worked out. His purpose will one day come to pass. That's what we call the sovereignty of God, that he is sovereign, that he is ruler over all things. Uh, This is a great example here of human responsibility and uh, of the sovereign will of God. Paul said, if you'd done what I told you, you wouldn't have had all this loss and damage. But nonetheless, God is going to save every one of you here, and he's revealed it to me. But, he said, you have to do the things I'm going to tell you to do. The sailors can't leave the ship, cannot leave the ship. The other things that are going to be worked out, so there is responsibility. Someone once came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and they said to him, how do you reconcile human responsibility With the sovereign will of God. You know what Spurgeon said? He said, I never try to reconcile friends. (laughs) I never try to reconcile friends. There's no contradiction here. God is going to work His uh, purpose out. And if you believe in the sovereignty of God, it means that you can sleep in a storm. You can sleep in a storm because you know that He is sovereign and He is working His purposes out. One of my favorite... Uh, Bible expositors was a man who used to be a great believer in the sovereignty of God and predestination for nation election. And back uh, during, before World War I, he had an uncle who was a major in the cavalry, the United States Cavalry. And he used to come and visit in their home, and he used to tell this story as a little boy, how he always wanted to uh, get uh, the the troop flag that the head uh, man on the horse uh, put up on the horse, and it showed the number of the troop. And his uncle, the major, brought him this flag. And he was so proud to have that flag, and he put it up in his room. And when his uncle would come and visit him, he asked his uncle one day, he said, what is the highest rank in all of the military? And his uncle, with great pride of service, said, general of the cavalry. And the little boy, as little boys will, said, what's the next highest? And he said, colonel of the cavalry. And he said, what's the next highest? He said, major of the cavalry. And he said, what's the next highest? he said, captain of the cavalry. He said, what's the next highest? He said, lieutenant of the cavalry. And he said, the next highest. He said, sergeant of the cavalry. He said, the next highest, private of the cavalry. The next highest, he said, trooper. And then the little boy thought he had him. And he said, what's the next highest? And his uncle said, horse (laughs) <laughs> and, then, and then the little boy was going to push it a little further, and he said, and what's the next highest? And his uncle said, General of the Infantry. <laughs> well, now, if you're looking for doctrines, believe in this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of predestination and election, uh, and it will aid your soul to know that God is working on schedule. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. What do you understand by the providence of God that the almighty and ever-present power of God whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth together with all creatures and rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come not to us by chance, but by his fatherly hand? And the question says, what advantage comes from acknowledging God's creation and providence? The answer comes, we learn that we are to be patient in adversity, grateful in the midst of blessing, and to trust our faithful God and Father for the future, assured that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so completely in his hand, that without his will, they cannot even move. God is working his purposes out. We can't see the end of the road from the beginning, but he can. And he is working his purposes for his glory. May I close by telling you a sweet story that Fulton Ausler tells in his own inimitable way. You know, sometimes it's hard to make the right decision about one problem or another. And sometimes we're tempted to take the most pleasant course and the easier way, even when we know we should do just the opposite. And even when we decide to do our our duty, it often seems like a useless sacrifice. And that's because we can't see the end of the road from the beginning. Now, this story is true. There was a country preacher in England 204 years ago on one summer Sunday morning the bells in the church at the crossroad rang out and a gilded private coach rumbled into the village of Waynesgate in Yorkshire. There was a very important man who was on a journey but he believed in worshiping God so he stopped. And he went in to this village church. He sat down in one of the ancient pews that were there and he listened because he was hungry for a word from God. He was surprised when he saw a humble preacher from the country who stood up and spoke with such simplicity and eloquence that he was moved to tears and felt nearer to God than he had ever felt before. Well, when he got back to London, he went to see his bishop and he spoke in the most rapturous terms of what had happened to him in that country church. And the bishop, who rather fancied himself something of a pulpit orator, said to this distinguished merchant, he said, why don't you bring your country genius here and let's have him preach in St. Paul's Cathedral. And so he was invited to come to London itself and to the great St. Paul's Cathedral and to stand and preach in that pulpit. When he stood up to preach, his voice began to quiver and his knees were shaking and he was pale and frightened by the large crowd. But as he began to speak, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him And he preached with such unction and power the love of Christ and of Christ's desire to win men unto him that every person in that church seemed to be shaken by the power of God. When the service was over and that young country preacher started back home, he carried with him an offer to one of the most distinguished pulpits in all of London to be the well-paid pastor of that church. He came back home and he realized that his family had increased year after year and he lived on less than $200 a year at that time. And he and his wife had to skimp along so they announced to the congregation that they were accepting the call to this church. On the Sunday that they were to leave to go to their new call, the wagons were all loaded and the minister and his wife came out of the parsonage and they saw on the village green. The members of their congregation praying and weeping because they hated to see their pastor leave. The wife looked into the eyes of her husband and she could read his soul and she said, John Fawcett, you know very well you'll never be able to leave here. And he looked at the people and he said the folk here need me more than they do in London unload the wagons, and put everything back. We're going to stay. He stayed for 25 more years. He had a stroke, and then a year later, he died. But on that memorable afternoon, when that touching scene had taken place, he went into his vestry in the little church, and he sat down, and he pinned the words of a hymn that millions of us have sung. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Let us pray. O God, our Father, for those who are present here this morning who have seen the storms of life raging, help them to know that the Lord Jesus, if they shall place their trust and faith and hope in him, will never, never let them go. Oh God, if there are persons here this morning who have never yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, grant that the Holy Spirit may so persuade and enable those persons this day to say yes to Jesus Christ forever and to yield up their lives to his Lordship and to know him as their sovereign and ruler of their lives. And Father God, will you watch over us in the weeks before we meet again, and will you keep us and meet our needs by your riches in Jesus, and will you cause us to grow in grace. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our Comforter and Guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.